as Larry said, it's good to be back, back here in Clarksburg at Grace Church. We missed you all last week. Um, Christine and I and Corey and Kylie, our two oldest, uh, had the opportunity last week. We spent about five or six days in England and then a few days in Scotland with Larry and Marilyn, and we just had a uh, wonderful time being away together. So thank you for your prayers and your thoughts, and, um, but it's better to be back here. As good as it was, it's better to be back here. Uh, please open your Bible to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. We're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And uh, I just want to let you know at the outset this morning, I'm not here to beat around the bush. I'm not here to tell you a sweet story that's going to have you going home feeling like you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. That is not the point of our time together this morning. In fact, every Sunday when we gather, this is not the point of our gathering. We gather to behold God in His glory through His Word. We gather to be addressed by Him, to receive from Him, to be confronted by Him. And this morning I have the responsibility of speaking God's Word to us, to all of us, and me included, from Exodus 20, verse 14. This is the seventh commandment as we've been working our way through the Ten Commandments as we've come to this part in Exodus. And this verse is the very Word of God. And as 2 Timothy 3 tells us, these words that we're going to read this morning, they're breathed out by God for our good. These words are given to us so that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. So our passage this morning, as I said, is Exodus 20, verse 14. And if you're there in your Bible, you can read along with me. It won't take long. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank You for speaking to us through Your Word, which is for our good and for Your glory. May we have hearts that are soft to be conformed to Your Word. May we live lives that are obedient to Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Perhaps no commandment has been smashed into more pieces in our culture than this commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Much more than you shall not, our culture emanates with you shall commit adultery. The cultural climate we find ourselves in can seem to be one of the most sexually charged in the history of the world. Sex is everywhere. Turn on the TV, go to the grocery store, watch a movie, listen to music, drive down the street, look at billboards, and you will see sex all around us. Sports and entertainment are used as a platform for so-called equality and sexual revolution. In politics, whether you're on the right or the left, the story is the same. Morality is ignored for the sake of ideology. And I haven't even mentioned the internet. According to stats that are now a decade old, so these are from 2008, pornography accounts for over 60% of all traffic on the internet. Just last month, Gallup released a poll that said 43% of Americans think pornography is morally acceptable. This number is up from 30% just seven years ago. So they started asking this question in their poll, 2011. It was at 30% then, it's at 43% now. Now, not only is sex everywhere, it's celebrated in every form. And this is not just out in the world. This is a problem for the church. Preaching from this task is a sobering task for two reasons. First, I, like probably all of you, are familiar with the devastating effects of disobedience to this command. I've seen it bring about the loss of jobs and the destruction of families. I've seen, seen it literally ruin lives. And second, in a group this size, there is a strong likelihood that some have committed adultery. Maybe you're in a, an adulterous relationship right now, and there's a greater likelihood that some of us have been viewing pornography this week. 
I heard one pastor, Kevin DeYoung, say this. He said, In my 15 years of pastoral ministry, probably 90% of the really difficult sin issues that come before the elders have had to do with sex and marriage. That's the way it always has been and probably the way it always will be. He goes on, he says, That makes sense since these are two of God's greatest gifts, sex and marriage. There is no relationship which can be so ultimate, sweet, life-giving, and joy-filled as the marital relationship. And there is no experience that can be as intimate and powerful within that marriage relationship as sex. So, of course, the devil is going to go after these two great gifts to God's people. In fact, to all people. We should expect confusion, misunderstanding, perversion, and sadly pain. Not because sex and marriage are bad or not worth the trouble, but precisely because they are such good gifts. God's best gifts are the ones most apt to be twisted and perverted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. God's best gifts are the ones most apt to be twisted and perverted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's vital to us that we give attention to this commandment, the seventh commandment. God knows what we need, so He has brought us here this morning. And this morning we're going to look at this commandment by asking two questions. So all we're going to look at, two questions. First, what does this commandment mean? And second, why does God give us this commandment? So first, what does this commandment mean? Now as with all of the commandments we've looked at, the meaning is very straightforward, but at the same time far more comprehensive than we might first think. This commandment, like the one before it and the three that come after it, expressly forbid a certain action. But as we read through Scripture, we see that the principle of this command is not limited only to this one thing that's forbidden. So what does this commandment forbid? Well, it begins by forbidding the most extreme form of a sin, in this case, adultery. In Israel's time, this commandment means exactly what we think it means. You shall not commit adultery. Adultery being a sexual relationship with someone who is married and not your spouse. And by implication, this commandment, it doesn't stop there. It rules out any sin that leads to this greater sin. Here, what is forbidden is adultery and everything that causes it. So it's adultery and everything that causes it. Martin Luther, he said it this way, great reformer. He said, this commandment applies to every form of unchastity, however it is called. Not only is the external act forbidden, but also every kind of cause, motive, and means. Your heart, your lips, and your whole body are to be chaste and to afford no occasion, aid, or encouragement to unchastity. This commandment, it forbids adultery. It forbids forbids fornication, sex outside of marriage. It forbids sexual perversion, homosexuality. But it's not just physical acts that this commandment forbids. It's not just about external acts. In Luther's words, it's also cause, motive, and means. So what else might be forbidden by this command? I think an illustration would be helpful here, and sadly, illustrations abound. But I want us to look at one from Scripture. In 2 Samuel 11, we're brought face to face with David's sin. As we walk through this passage, think about Luther's words, cause, motive, and means that lead to breaking this commandment. So just to catch us up, 2 Samuel 11, in 2 Samuel, David is the king of Israel. And he is, he is called a man after God's own heart. Then we come to 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David, who was the king, sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained 
at Jerusalem. Already in verse 1, we are confronted with failure on David's part. This was the time when he was to go out in battle. To go out to battle. This is the time in the spring when the kings go out to battle. But David stays in Jerusalem. This verse is telling us exactly where David should have been and what he should have been doing, but instead he decides to take it easy in Jerusalem. Instead of fulfilling his duty as king, David stays in Jerusalem. Now verse 2 describes the tragic consequence of David's decision. It says this, It happened late one afternoon. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David, he was supposed to be out on the battlefield. He had neglected his sacrificial duty to serve his people by going out to battle. This selfishness on his part, it led somewhere. It led to lust. It led to an intentional desire for that which he shouldn't have. It began with his selfish laziness. It led to lust as he looked, which brought him to follow through on his lustful intent with adultery. And it only got much worse from there. One scholar writes this. He says, It seemed like such a small thing. Only a moment of weakness. That's all. But soon Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant and the cover-up started. By the time David was finished, Bathsheba's husband was dead, and the king was guilty not only of adultery, but also of lying, stealing, and murder. Adultery for David, it wasn't just this momentary lapse in judgment. No, there were sinful actions that led to this great action. And when God gives this command in Exodus 20, He has in mind all that leads to this sin of adultery. Now we can see this broad application of the principle of this commandment in Jesus' own words. As we've seen time and time again in the Ten Commandments, when Jesus comes, He doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to fulfill it. He comes to not dismiss the commands, but expand on them and transform them. And so in Matthew 5, verse 27, this is what Jesus says about the Seventh Commandment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is explicit. He's not mincing any words. You don't have to have sex with someone to break this commandment. All you have to do is look at someone with lustful intent, with a sexual desire for them. Jesus says this commandment is not just about your body, it's about your heart. Lest we miss his point and think maybe he's overstating things, Jesus goes on in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole, of, your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Y'all, Jesus is not messing around here. I think for too many of us, we excuse our sin, and we want our sin, and we don't take the danger of sin seriously. So we don't take the radical steps to avoid sin. I heard one pastor say that there are too many whole-bodied people going to hell, and not enough spiritual amputees going to heaven. Too many whole-bodied people going to hell, and not enough spiritual amputees going to heaven. So there's no doubt that this command is a serious command 
Jesus says just as much. And it's also far broader than what it may first seem. But this doesn't tell us why. Why is this such a big deal? This is where we're going to spend the majority of our time together. Why does God give us this commandment? Why does God give us this commandment? Or another way to ask it is what kind of God would even command us that we should not commit adultery? Now the commandments that God gives us, they flesh out God's priorities for His people. I love how Pastor Ray Ortland he puts it when he says this. He says, Like an untrained soldier thrown into the chaos of a battle, already well advanced, the young nation of Israel was born into a world long violent with sin, but unable to find the ways of peace. The late arriver, Israel, needed orientation. So God gives them His law. God's people need orientation. They need to be trained. They need to be taught. So God gives His law to train them. God's people needed to be oriented to God's ways. They need to know God's priorities in all things, most particularly in how they relate to one another. That's what we see in these last six commandments. After the one we looked at yesterday, which prioritizes the sanctity, last two weeks ago, which prioritizes the sanctity of human life, the seventh commandment makes clear that God cares a great deal about marriage. Now, as we've made our way through Exodus, we've seen that this book is all about God making himself known. He makes himself known to Israel as they are slaves in Egypt. He makes himself known to Pharaoh in Egypt as he shows his power, delivering the Israelites from their bondage. Every step of the way, God is making himself known through Exodus. Now, when we come to this commandment, this purpose, God making himself known, it hasn't ended. It's still going on. God is still working to make himself known. And the first thing we see about God in this commandment is that God cares a great deal about marriage. But why? Why does God care about marriage? Now here it might make sense to talk about and think about the economic and social benefits of marriage. Throughout the history of the world, marriage has been the bedrock of a flourishing society. Historically, a culture that prioritizes and protects marriage, it flourishes. I could do this. I could get into the whys behind this. But if we did that, I think we'd be missing the point. That would be a study in sociology. And while there's a place for that, that's not why we're here. We are here to hear from God. So in order to understand why God gives this command, we need to look at what God says about marriage. I'm going to do this in a little bit of a different way. I'm going to do this by telling a story. And this story begins where all stories should begin, at the beginning. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1, the first chapter of the Bible, it recounts this remarkable creation. God creates through His Word. He says, let there be light. And there is light. As God creates, He declares, one of the things we hear Him declaring again and again, is it was good. It was good. All of God's creation was good. And this good creation culminates on the sixth day. And in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we read this, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So at the very, the very beginning, God in His good creation creates male and female. In His own image to fulfill, uh, to f- be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's Genesis 1. And we, we come to Genesis 2. And if we're unfamiliar with the, the storyline of Scripture, it's surprising what we find. 
Because Moses, the writer of Genesis, he goes back and tells us what God was at work doing when he created the world. So in Genesis 2, we see man in this beautiful garden with all that he needs. And we come across something not good. In Genesis 2.18, we read this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so God brings before Adam every animal, every bird, and has him name every one. The name of the animals gave opportunity for Adam to find a suitable companion. But after getting through everything, all the animals, all the birds, Adam came up short. So God caused a deep sleep to come upon the man, and from his rib he creates woman. And when the man wakes up and sees the woman, he declares this in Genesis 2.23. He breaks into poetry. He says this, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's seen all the world has to offer, but this at last is bone of his bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He has found his companion at last. Male and female, God created them. Now God creates male and female distinct yet equally valuable. He creates them to to complement one another. There was something entirely unique in God's good design. Now keep in mind that this is all taking place before sin enters the world. That happens in Genesis 3. This is all a part of God's created order, part of God's good plan at creation. Now at this point, Moses, the writer of Genesis, he inserts a brief narrative comment for his his post-fall readers. So everybody who's reading this is after the fall. Sin has entered the world. And Moses writes this in 2.24. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So because of what God has done in creation, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God wants his people to know that this is the first marriage. This is the paradigm for all marriages. A man leaves his other family allegiance when he marries. And that couple then clings together in lifelong commitment. And they express their oneness in marriage through a lifelong intimacy, a covenant bond called marriage. Now marriage is foundational to the created order. God created male and female to be committed to one another, to complement one another, to be faithful to one another. And the sign of this commandment, this covenant, is that they become one flesh. The sexual union, this one flesh union, is a sign of their covenant faithfulness to one another. So God gives this commandment, the seventh commandment, to His people so that they might walk faithfully in their marriages, that they might protect God's good created order. You shall not commit adultery. So you see what God is doing. He he wants to protect. This law is given to protect God's good creation. But the significance of marriage... It goes deeper than just being a part of creation. Now, contrary to what we often think, marriage is not an end in and of itself. Marriage is not the point. Rather, marriage is a pointer. It's a signpost on the road pointing to something else. It's a shadow of something much greater and much more fulfilling. This past week, as you know, Christine and I, we were out in the UK, and as we were traveling, we spent some of our time driving from destination to destination. I rented a car. It was manual, just to let you know. So I'm sitting on the right side, driving on the left side of the road, and Christine was my navigator. 
And as we drove, she would, she had her phone out with GPS on it and she would be telling me what to go. And so we're approaching a roundabout and it's, all right, we're taking the third exit. It's kind of to the right. And so we're going around. And so all, every step of the way she's, she's navigating and she did a great job. But often as we get, got a bit closer to our destination, we would start see, to see signs telling us, uh, telling us the way to go to reach our destination. So, I mean, we're tourists there, so we're kind of seeing touristy things, and they have touristy signs. So, as we're driving, I start to see these signs, and I start to eagerly look for them, because even for as great as Christine did navigating, these signs provided a bit more confident of a, uh, direct, a sure direction for me. They never wavered or waffled in telling me where I should go. I mean, because sometimes we get to a roundabout, and it's like, it's the second exit. No, no, I, think, uh, I don't know if it's this one. No, it's the next roundabout. But the signs never did that. They always knew exactly where they were going. So I was excited about these signs. Now, there was never a time, though, as excited as I was to find these signs, there was never a time where I saw one of these signs and I said, you know what? This is good enough. Like, let's just stop here. Let's just hang out here at this sign. We've been looking for this sign. This is great. No way. No, we wanted to get to the destination because we knew that the destination, it would be far, far better than stopping at the signpost, right? So what I want us to do now is to look at the destination together. All right, if marriage is a signpost, where is it pointing? Now please turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians in the New Testament, so towards the back of your Bible. I always remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Because as a kid, somebody told me, it's God's electric power company. I said, oh. So I still have not forgotten that, sadly. So in case you ever get confused, that one was free. I might charge you for the next one. Ephesians 5. In Ephesians, Paul pulls back the curtain on marriage. Here Paul tells us what marriage is meant to point to. In other words, here we see why God cares so much about marriage. We started with why does God give us this commandment? We saw that it's because he cares about marriage. But why does God care about marriage? Read with me beginning in chapter 5, verse 22 of the book of Ephesians. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. This is Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. You catch it in verse 32 there. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The whole point of marriage is to point forward to the relationship of Christ and His church. The relationship of God with His people. 
And what Paul is saying, what God is saying through Paul in his word right here, is that this was established at creation. Now I know that this is not new to many of you. I know there weren't going to be too many like, oh man, no way, I never thought saw that. But I do think that we don't appreciate this like we should. I know that I tend to minimize this idea far too often. I don't embrace how important this idea is to Scripture, how fundamental it is to the fabric of Scripture. You see, God didn't go off looking for a way to describe His love for His people. And He's looking around, He's like, man, how can I, how can I demonstrate this? He didn't look out at the different relationships in humanity and say, you know what, I, like, I think maybe marriage is the strongest human love. So that's what I'll use. No, no, it was the other way around. At creation, God gave us, He gave us sexual passion and the covenant commitment of marriage so that we might know His jealous love for us. Marriage was always meant to be a signpost. One theologian, J.I. Packer, he writes this. He says, The sweetness of affection between the sexes, linked with the sense that a couple's relationship, however complete, is never quite complete, is actually a jeweled signpost pointing us on to God. A signpost only helps those who will head the way it directs. And if you insisted on camping for life beside a lovely signpost, you would be daft. You would never get anywhere. So brothers and sisters, may we never camp at the signpost and miss the destination. The story of the Bible, which is the story of God's relationship with His people, is not just a law book. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's really a divine romance. It's a love story ultimately. God creates a people to be in relationship with Him. This is back in the garden. He creates this people to be in relationship with Him to experience true joy in fellowship with Him. And God knows that this is the only place where we will find true happiness. The only place to find happiness is in happiness itself. God, who is perfection itself. But sin, in Genesis 3, sin breaks into the world and seeks to destroy this relationship. That's what sin is always seeking to do. Sin makes a relationship with a holy God impossible. Because a holy God cannot tolerate any sin. And the story of Scripture is the story of God rescuing His people and restoring them into relationship with Him. God makes His promises first to Noah, then to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And He's saying that He's going to make this people into a great nation, a great people for His glory. And what makes this people great is not in anything that they've done. They were actually kind of a mess. They were a mess. They weren't kind of a mess. They were a mess, as you read through Scripture. What made them great was not them. It was God's love for them. God's choosing them. So God calls this people. He loves this people. He delivers this people from slavery for His own glory, as we've been seeing in Exodus. And He calls them to walk faithfully before Him. We saw this in the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before Me. But as we'll see in a few weeks, and as you're all well aware, you don't have to go very far to see the unfaithfulness of God's chosen people. While God is faithful, we sang about it this morning, how great is your faithfulness, God's people are unfaithful. Page after page, generation after generation, God's people choose things other than God. They choose not God constantly. They can't stop worshiping, but they are worshiping the wrong thing. They throw themselves after other gods. They are an unfaithful people. And the Bible talks about this as spiritual adultery. This theme, it comes up again and again and again. God's people, they're compared to a harlot throwing themselves at other lovers. 
And God is patient with them. And He sends prophets to remind them of what He's already done, to remind them of His love for them. This is all through the Old Testament. Now, if you're having trouble with this concept, go back and read through Scripture with this lens, thinking about this theme of marriage pointing to Christ. Read through the book of Hosea. It's not very long. And you will get a striking picture of God's covenant love for His unfaithful people. If you're unfamiliar, I'll just kind of give you a brief outline. Hosea is a prophet, and God tells Hosea to marry an adulteress, a harlot. And what does she do? She does the things that adulteresses do as they get married. She is unfaithful again and again and again. And Hosea, God calls Hosea to love her and bring her back and to provide for her and to care for her again and again and again. And through this, we see a picture of God's covenant love for His people. Another thing you can do could be to get a copy of this book. Sally Lloyd-Jones is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Read it to your kids or just read it for yourself. The author does an outstanding job of tracing the storyline of Scripture and how God is constantly at work loving His people by demonstrating His faithfulness amidst their unfaithfulness. I want to give you one example. I've been reading this with my two youngest kids this summer. And as God brings His people out of exile back to Jerusalem... The author writes about Ezra reading God's word to the people. And this is what she writes. She says, All day they listened to stories about the wonderful things God had done for his people. How he made the world. How he gave a special promise to Abraham. How he rescued them from slavery. How he spoke to Moses and showed them how to live. How he brought them to a special land. How he rescued them, no matter what, time after time, over and over again because of His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. They remembered how God had always, all through the years, been loving His children, keeping His promise to Abraham, taking care of them, forgiving them, even when they disobeyed, even when they ran away from Him, even when they thought they didn't need Him. Then God told His children something more. I can't stop loving you. You are my heart's treasure, but I lost you. Now I am coming back for you. I am like the sun that gently shines on you, chasing away darkness and fear and death. You'll be so happy. You'll be like little calves running free in an open field. I'm going to send my messenger, the promised one, the one you have been waiting for, the rescuer. He is coming, so get ready. And brothers and sisters, the rescuer has come. The groom has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. He came that we might know life. He came knowing that we would fall short of holiness again and again. And He came and lived a holy life. He came to save the adulterer, to cleanse the fornicator, to forgive the one enslaved to lust. And He did it through His pure life. He did it through His atoning death. He did it through His death-defeating resurrection. And in God's infinite wisdom and creative genius, He didn't simply create marriage as a good thing to be enjoyed. Though it is definitely that. Marriage between a husband and his wife, biblically defined, it serves as a metaphor for something far greater. Human marriage is like this arrow pointing upward to a relationship even more glorious. And our marriages here on earth, they're meant to point to the God who takes initiative to pursue a people for himself to bring him glory. His pursuit of such a people, it's not random, it's not impersonal. It's a particular and careful pursuit of a people so dear to him, he will call them his bride. And we see in the last book of Revelation. So we started in the garden, now we're all the way to Revelation 20, verse 7. 
the Apostle John records the praises of a great multitude in heaven, declaring this, Let us rejoice and exult, and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb that has come and His bride has made herself ready. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. The bride is the church. And the call to us today is to make ourselves ready. And of critical importance to this call is the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Faithfulness to God and to one another is central to the life of God's people, the church. This is not something that we can shove aside to talk about more popular topics. In our day and age, a call to sexual purity and marital fidelity is an unpopular message, but it's a biblical message, so we proclaim it. I mean, I will, I will tell you firsthand as I'm working on this this week, there's a lot of other things I'd rather be talking about. But this is the Word of God, and it is good for us, and we need it. So we proclaim it. But more than proclaim it, we must live it. It's one thing to say it, it's another thing to do it. We must be faithful to God and faithful to one another. And this begins with faithfulness in marriage, protecting the marriage bed. Our lives are to be lived in covenant faithfulness. Several months back, I read a book that dealt with addictive technologies, such as our smartphones and the internet. I was talking about like how, how do these things interact with our brain and our behavior. And the author is careful to highlight that addiction can happen to anyone as they learn to go to something in order, this is their phrase, to soothe their psychological distress. Anything that you go to to soothe your psychological distress. Addiction happens when we go to something as the source of our peace, our joy, our escape. Now, at one point, the author says that addicts aren't people who necessarily like a particular substance or behavior. Rather, they want that substance or behavior, regardless of the effect it has in their life. So it makes this distinction between like and want. And these are the sentences that really jumped out at me. The author writes this. He says, What makes addiction so difficult to treat is that wanting is much harder to defeat than liking. Wanting is much harder to defeat than liking. He quotes a researcher who says this, when people make decisions, they privilege wanting over liking. Wanting is much more robust and big and broad and powerful. That's wanting. Liking is anatomically tiny and fragile. It's easily disrupted, and it occupies only a very small part of the brain. He makes the point that we are driven not by what we like necessarily, but by, we, but, why we, but by what we want. Liking something is no match to really wanting something. Now I bring that up to say this, that our great danger, living life in this fallen world as sinful, saved people, is that as professing Christians, we just like Jesus. We like Jesus, but really we want our own comfort. We want our own pleasure. Our huge problem is that, as in the words of this researcher, wanting is much more big and robust and broad and powerful than liking. The great problem with our sin is that it puts ourself at the center of our affections. We might know the truth and like the truth, but if we don't want Christ, if we don't see God as the greatest good, then we're going to pursue and desire something else. Our sins, our addictions, our failure to be faithful, all stem from our hearts, 
as Jesus made the point in Matthew 5. Our affections are set on the wrong things and we allow ourselves to be shaped by the wrong things. So the world tells us that chasing our own desires will bring satisfaction and joy and peace. The world tells us that if we just get that one thing, then we will be happy. We will have enough. The world tells us that what we do with our bodies is our own business. What we do with our minds, with our eyes, is up to us. The world tells us that we can find happiness in more sex or more money or more vacation or more friends or more power. But here's the thing we must know. Only God brings satisfaction. God alone can satisfy. Only God can truly and eternally soothe our psychological distress in whatever form they take. Only God can bring true joy full to the brim. Only God can give us peace. God alone can satisfy us because only God meets the needs of our souls. Because if God is the great good, if He is the fountain of joy, the path to the full and the blessed life, then see what a perversion sin is. Sin substitutes the one source of true and everlasting joy, which is God, and puts in its place our own self. We exchanged God for ourselves, our own desires, and pursuing our own comfort becomes the path to happiness. That's what sin does. Paul writes this in Romans 8.13. He says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Our call as Christians is to put to death the deeds of the body, to mortify or to kill sin. We must fight sin because sin lies to us. We must fight sin because it defames God. We must fight sin because its objective is to destroy us. Its purpose is death. We fight sin because we don't want to settle for camping at the signpost. We fight sin so that we don't settle for temporary, fleeting, earthly pleasures when we can have God Himself. Last week I got to stand in University Church in Oxford, which is a church that's been standing for over 700 years. They say that a church has been there for over 1,000 years. Many remarkable men have stood in that pulpit and addressed those gathered. Now, one of those men was C.S. Lewis. On June 8, 1942, Lewis stood in that church and gave one of his most famous lectures. And in it, he famously said this. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We like Jesus. We like Jesus. But we really want the mud pies because we can't see the glory of what God offers to us in eternal life. We are far too easily pleased. Dear church, beloved brothers and sisters, don't settle for sin. This seventh commandment stands as a stark contrast to a hypersexualized world and reminds us, don't settle for sin. It reminds us to pursue covenant faithfulness, to give ourselves to feeling deeply and desiring urgently the glory of God in all things, in all relationships, in all situations. Adultery, whether it's physical or spiritual, it doesn't believe that God is good enough to satisfy us. Adultery reveals a heart that may like Jesus, but truly wants the world. And this is something we all have to deal with. 
this is a problem that lies in each of our hearts. So unless you came in here this morning thinking, yeah, this doesn't have too much to do with me. It has to do with all of us because the roots of adultery lie in each of our hearts. And too often we think of sin as no big deal. We think, you know, a little fantasizing, it'll be fine. We think, you know, everyone looks at pornography, so what's the big deal? We think no one will ever know what we're doing. No one will ever know what we're thinking. But God always knows. Proverbs 5.21 says this, A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. God knows what we do with our bodies. God knows what we look at. God knows what we think. God knows what we desire and touch. And God will hold us accountable for all of this. So what hope do we have? We are without doubt an adulterous people, but where do we turn? Now perhaps you're here this morning convicted of a pattern of sin in your heart. Maybe it's physical adultery. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe you're just aware of a growing love for the world in your heart. How do we respond? Now earlier we looked at the tragic adultery of David in 2 Samuel 11. But that wasn't the end of the story. You see, David was king. I mean, he's, he's got all the power. And he thought he would get away with what he had done. And it seemed like it for a while. But in 2 Samuel 12, David is found out. He is confronted in his sin. And by God's grace, we're given David's response to this confrontation in Psalm 51. And he gives us a model for how we are to respond. David writes this in Psalm 51. He begins by crying out for forgiveness. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This is what we were singing earlier this morning. Have mercy on me. Now the only way David could ask God for mercy, for forgiveness, was through a sacrifice, through the blood of a lamb. He says this in verse 7. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And then David prays for God to sanctify him, to continually work in him, saying this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David got it right. And as David confessed his sin, God was faithful and just to forgive his sins. This is what we read in 1 John 1, 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There were still grave consequences that David had to deal with in his sin. But his guilt had been taken away. And the same might be true for you today. If you have sin that you have not repented of, that you were hiding, Confessing that sin is the right step to take. There are really only two choices when we're confronted with our sinfulness and our call to live a holy life before God. We either hide our sin, which will always destroy us, or we confess our sin and repent of it. And we may have consequences, serious consequences to deal with, but it is there in confessing our sin that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. Now, unless you think you are too far gone in your sin, And just as an encouragement to all of us, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, 20th century Welsh pastor, says, even adultery is not the unforgivable sin. It's a terrible sin. 
But God forbid that there should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery. No. No, if you truly repent and realize the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, you can be forgiven. Brothers and sisters, you can be forgiven. And I assure you of pardon. But hear the words of our blessed Lord. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Cast yourself upon Jesus and find cleansing and forgiveness in Him. Cast yourself upon Jesus and find joy and freedom from your sin. Cast yourself upon Jesus and walk in new life in the Spirit. God says this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's call to us is to live as we are. If we have repented of our sins, turn to Jesus Christ to live as we are, a new creation. We are new people by God's grace. So let us turn to Him and let us live like it. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, thank You for challenging us with Your Word. May we live in light of the grace we receive through Jesus Christ. May we live as we are as Your children, bought by Your blood. Lord, help us to walk in faithfulness to You and to one another. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who might be convicted of patterns of sin in their life, whether it is adultery or it's sin leading to adultery. Lord, may You give them grace to humble themselves, to confess their sins to You, to turn from their sins, to find rest in You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.